there wasn't like a weekly place to worship in in a Jewish way. So I um I attended a, a regular um congregation, a regular church congregation as I was as I was growing up. And um and they had a song that was actually a really horrible <laughs> song for children, but God could use anything. But this song kind of terrified me. And it went like this. One door and only one, and yet the sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? (laughs) What's up, friends? I was having a conversation with someone, and they asked if I was going to make my children believe in Jesus like I do. And I found this question interesting. And when I thought about it for a second, I realized that trying to make someone believe in something is the antithesis of faith. Salvation is based on our faith in the finished work of the Messiah, Yeshua, and cannot be something that we force or impose on people. In one of the most famous Bible verses, John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever prays and does good deeds or whoever follows in their parents' footsteps will have everlasting life. No, but whoever believes... So my response was, my faith in Jesus is not their faith, and my children will have to have their own relationship with God apart from my will and desire. Now, this doesn't absolve me from my role as a believing parent to speak about God and his way of salvation through Yeshua in my home, which does, of course, influence them. But they must come to that conclusion and make their decision on their own. Our special guest today, Ruth Rosen, is a writer, author, and has a degree in biblical studies from Biola College. She was raised by parents that believed in Jesus. Her father, Moshe Rosen, is actually the founder of Jews for Jesus Ministry. She came to faith at an early age, but had her struggles. And she's here today to share with us her amazing journey of faith in Jesus, Yeshua, as a Jewish woman. Hey, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for um, letting me be your guest today. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, um, you know, you can find testimonies of, of Jewish believers in Jesus all over the internet now, and the numbers are, are rising you know, all over the world, and more and more Jews are actually deciding to look into the possibility of Jesus as Messiah and Savior instead of having that decision made for them by other people. Your testimony is unique in that you grew up in a home of believers, uh, yet you had struggles regarding your own faith in Yeshua. So Ruth, can you tell us your story and perhaps get into how you see Yeshua differently now uh, than how you did when you were a child? Sure, sure. Um, well, having grown up in a messianic home um, at the time that I did is is actually very different than it is today. We didn't have like a lot of messianic synagogues. Um, we knew that we were Jewish. We celebrated Passover. You know, we had matzah with peanut butter and jelly and 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 things like that. But um, but there wasn't like a weekly place to worship in in a Jewish way. So I. Um, I attended a, a regular um, congregation, a regular church congregation, as I was as I was growing up, and um, and they had a song that was actually a really horrible <laughs> song for children, but God could use anything. But this song kind of terrified me, and it went like this: one door and only one, and yet the sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> which was. Which was, you know, uh, if I were teaching children, that's not what I would do. But like I said, God could use anything. And, yeah. and I just knew that I was not on the inside. Mm. I just knew it. I, um, From the time I was very young, I was really aware of, um, for lack of a better word, my sin. Mm. 
Um, and um, you might think, well, what can a little kid, you know, do? But, you know, when I was five years old, you know, I'd be with my mom in the grocery store and we'd go down the aisle and there'd be marshmallows. And I loved marshmallows, but we could only have them as a special treat. And so, and so I'd say, mommy, can we get the marshmallows? And she would say no. She always said no. Mm. And I would let her kind of go on down the aisle and I would kind of hang out there until she couldn't see me. And then I would take and I would squeeze and pinch those bags of marshmallows and try and make a little hole in as many bags as I could. Mm. And and in my mind, I was imagining, you know, some other little girl saying, Mommy, can we have the marshmallows? And she'd say, sure, sweetie. And then she'd say, oh, no, we can't. The bag is ripped. Mm. I just knew that that was so horrible of me and it was so ugly of me. And I knew that because of things like that in my life that now might seem silly and laughable, but actually come from a very serious, you know, problem in, in the human heart. And I knew that it was bad. So I was, I was scared because I was on the outside and Mm. I didn't exactly know what that meant, but I knew that, but I knew that it wasn't good. (laughs) And uh, so on the 4th of July, um, we were, um, I think we were in Oregon and uh, my dad was speaking at like a family camp and my mom had stayed back with me and I was just kind of staring out the window and she saw that I was unhappy and she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I don't want to go to hell. Hmm. And she said, well, who told you that you're going to hell? And I said, well, nobody, but I know that God doesn't allow sin in hell and uh, in heaven and you know, hell is the other place and I have sin, you know, and I'm sure that I had heard the gospel before, but it didn't necessarily, you know, what happened out there and what Jesus did for the world, it didn't necessarily mean that he did it for me. So my mom kind of, you know, very sweetly said, you know, well, we can take care of that right now. Do you want to do that? And and so she led me in an understanding that, you know, Jesus dying for the sin of the world wasn't just something out there, but it, that it was for me personally. And so um, we prayed and she said, do you feel any different? And I said, no, can we do it again? And I've not always been able to feel, you know, what what I thought I should feel. And so after like three times, I decided I would just trust her that she knew what she was talking about. But actually, I... I received Jesus more out of fear than anything else because I knew that something was wrong and, you know, and I didn't want to be in that bad place. Mm. Um, as, as I grew older, I was, I, I was very concerned for my friends. I, I wanted them also to, you know, to be safe. You know, I, yeah. I wanted things for them. And, um, you know, and they, they, they would say, no, I'm Jewish. When I tell the gospel, I say, well, I am too. And that, didn't always go over very well, but right. you know, but I did my best. But again, it was it was really still out of fear. Then when I got to be um, close to fifteen years old, I had a different kind of fear, and that was I'm never going to know anything except being this this good kid who always does what she's supposed to, and never going to experience anything in life that God wouldn't want me to experience. And I just you know. I'm just tired of it. I'm just really tired of it. And um, and I don't want to have to worry about what God says and what he wants. I just I just want to live my own life for a while. But but just until I graduate high school, you know, 
And then, you know, I'll experience, you know, what I'm going to, but I won't do anything too life-altering. I won't ruin my life, you know. I won't get pregnant or, you know, whatever. I won't get addicted to drugs. But I just won't have to worry about what God thinks all the time. And so I I embarked on that journey kind of out of a fear of missing out, I guess. FOMO is like a big deal. And I guess I had a little bit of that. And um, so that didn't really work out so well. Uh. Most of my rebellion was in my head, in my thoughts, just, you know, the thing with the marshmallows and that kind of sin. It was like, it was all in my head and in my inner landscape, which has always been very robust. Yeah. But um, but I was liking myself less and less. I was becoming, you know, more depressed, more moody. And my friends would ask me, you know, well, what's what's wrong? And I would say, well, I had this great relationship with God and I kind of walked away and I'm sure someday I'll turn back, but for now it's just really crappy. Mm. Except I used a different word. Yeah, you're so you're 15 when you're saying this. Yeah, yeah. because even even though you're rebelling, it's still kind of a mature thing to say, you know. Anyway, um, I I had a I had a boyfriend who was really what we now would call toxic for me, and um and I was actually afraid of him too. So you can see the big role that fear played in my life, at least up to a point. <clears throat> it was a relationship that was not um, taking me anywhere good, and um, but I was too emotionally enmeshed to really to be able to break it off. And so my first prayer in a very long time was, God, you know, I know I've been stupid, and I, you know, I haven't cared what you think, but if you still love me, please get me out of this relationship with this guy. And and like within a week, it happened. Hmm. And it, it was something that was totally, you know, beyond my control. I mean, he didn't even really mean to break up with me. And he tried to get back together after that. But I was like, no, God did this. Wow. Um, so, um, but I, I didn't immediately um, kind of get back on track. I was, you know, my, my friends and I, you know, I, I, I fit in well with them, even though later I found out that they still thought I was pretty much, you know, the good kid, you know, like I can, I had considered at one point dropping acid. And years later, when I told the friend that I was going to ask for, she said, I never would have given that to you. <laughs> so, you know, so God was still like looking out for me, you know, even when I thought I was being rebellious. But, but, um, so my sister invited me out of the blue to a Jews for Jesus Bible study. And I, I don't know why, because I had not been going for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I said, no. And she said, oh, come on. And I said, well, why would I want to go? And she said, well, I already got a ride for you, which was like a really stupid reason. But for some reason, I said, okay. So I went in um, early days of Juice for Jesus before we were even incorporated and sitting on the floor in Corte Madera. And I looked around and I thought, I told God if he loved me to get me out of the relationship, and he did. I'm looking around this room, and even though I've been so selfish and stupid, these people love me. I have no idea what was taught from the Bible that night. Mm. But just this sense that I was loved. And so my motivation went from fear to knowing that I was loved. And that just just broke my heart. You know, it was like, I don't know how you still love me. You know, I'm still this mean, you know, marshmallow girl. (laughs) 
I mean, I was very kind on the outside. I think everybody would have said that I was kind and, you know, yeah. but I knew what I was inside. And, yeah. And the fact that I was loved just, so I went home that night and I, I remember wrestling with, with God before going to sleep and saying, you know, God, I know that I need to, I, I know that I need to come back and renew my relationship with you and, but I don't want to, and it's so uncomfortable and I'm, you know. What will my friends think? And there were really only two friends that I was worried about. And so I said, um, God, okay, here's the deal. I'll rededicate my life to you if you just you know, make it easy for me to tell my friends. Hmm. And I'm not somebody who says God told me this or God spoke to me that, but that night I, I remember very clearly a thought came to me that was not my thought. <laughs> and it was like, what I did for you wasn't easy. And I'm like, mm. okay, fair enough. Wow. So, okay, so I get it. You're not going to make it easy for me, but so, but just help me to follow through and do it. And I got the feeling like, yeah, I'll do that. That's I great. That. That's great. It's, it's funny because we all we, we often pray our, try to pray our way out of issues and try our, try to pray our way out of problems, and yet it's the problem that actually we need to face and and to find our strength in in God and what He's done. To get us through the problem instead of have him take away the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so true. Um, so things things went along with my my faith. I think, you know, it was in a sense it was stronger, but it still it still wasn't exactly life changing because I grew up, you know, I had a, a good upbringing. Yeah. Wasn't a whole lot outwardly you know, that one might have thought needed to change. I got good grades, decent people skills and so forth, whatever gifts God gave me, you know. Right. But by the time I was in my 40s, I I just felt like I was stuck. Like, you know, it was the same thing. Outwardly, everything was fine. But inwardly, I knew that I didn't really want God running my life. I mean, I was already working in ministry. I'm already serving him. I'm already like doing what I should be doing. Yeah. But but then I realized that I hadn't completely surrendered my life to God. Why? Well, we come back to the fear. And fear is basically I might get something that I don't want or I might not get something that I do want. And that's why it's hard to surrender to God. I, I know I know that a lot of people can relate to your story, which is which is why I want I'm, I'm happy that people are hearing it because you know oh someone had this this um, experience where they experienced Jesus they gave their life to Jesus and and their life was just you know it was better and everything they didn't have their struggles but I'm I'm at home struggling and I don't I don't really know if I believe I I, I thought I did but I'm not sure and this story is really important because I would I would have to say that more people than not would relate to what you're saying. So I I really felt kind of stuck. And then uh, I had an interesting experience um, where I, I had an assignment at work. And by now I was I was writing and editing full time um, in ministry um, with Juice for Jesus. And I was given an assignment that like wasn't one of my favorite assignments, um, but it needed to be done. And I was the right person to do it. And it yeah. took a long time and it was bothersome on a few levels. And when I finished it, um, our executive director, um, David Brickner, asked me, you know, he said, you know, that was a good job. I would like to give you a perk. What would you like? 
and um and he listed a few things um you know travel to europe take photos do this do that you know bonus or whatever and i thought about it and 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 really the only the only thing that came to mind um was just well just you know let me have your ear if there's something i feel that i need to say you know and um and i think he was pleased with that um but that night as, again as i was going to sleep um in that that part of my mind where a thought occurred that did not seem to be something that i would think and i i do believe it was from god was what if i asked you what do you want mm. and i I, I felt it was like, God, why would you, you know, are, are you talking to me? <laughs> it wasn't an audible voice or anything like that, but it certainly wasn't, you know. And I and I thought about it, not for very long, and I said, I would ask you to change me because I'm, I'm stuck. Mm. Um, and by stuck, it was just, you know, I had given him, I was serving him, supposedly full-time but in my heart you didn't really trust him yeah you know i didn't i i didn't really i wasn't really all there in terms of surrendering my heart to him and and i felt that god was responding to me saying i like that i will do that but don't expect that right away mm -hmm. and it was actually years later um, it was in 2016 and, um, my dad had passed away in 2010. His yard site is tomorrow, by the way, as we're 13 years. Um, my dad had passed away. My beloved dog was sick. <laughs> um, her days were kind of numbered. My mother had been, um, diagnosed with congested heart failure. Mm. He ended up living another couple of years with that diagnosis, but and and I was sitting in my den, and I thought, God, you are the only one who loves me, who I love, who isn't going to die. Mm. Um, I really, I need to have a closer relationship with you. And I started thinking about it and why, you know, why don't I, you know, why, why after decades of, you know, having given my life to Jesus, you know, why, why am I here in this place now realizing that I have so little to show for it? I started to do an inventory and I thought, what am I, what am I seeing in my life that talk, that, that demonstrates a transformation you know, that were promised, you know, where's the fruit, you know, where's the love, the joy, the peace, yeah. the patience, the, you know, the kindness, the faithfulness, the long-suffering, gentleness, and, and all of that. And a lot of it was there on the surface, but it wasn't really deep inside. If something bad happened, you know, those fruits weren't necessarily what was going to come out. Mm -hmm. And when I started to think, what am I afraid of? I realized that I was most afraid of losing the blessings that God had given me, you know, losing my parents, losing my dog, losing this or losing that. And I suddenly was hit hard with something I probably knew all along, but I had never really 
looked into <laughs> the ugly face of my ingratitude where I loved God for all the blessings that he'd given me. I really appreciated all the good things, but I was more concerned with hanging on to what God had given me than I was concerned with hanging on to God himself. Mm. Wow. Um, and uh, and there was nothing I could do about it. And I said, God, I I can't. This is this is how it's always been. I've always I've always cherished your gifts more than I've cherished you. Mm. I'm not going to change. I can't change. If you want me to change, you have to change me. I love that. It's such a powerful prayer, and I just want to encourage people that are watching. It, it's it's a it's a prayer that I think all of us should pray. You know, Father, change me into the person that you want me to be. Um, and I think that's a it's a great sign that we're aware of our own sin. Because if we're not praying that prayer, we think we're 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 doing all right and we're you know we're on the right track. We're we got everything together, and and as soon as we hold on to that thought that we have it all together, that's when we start to things start to fall apart with regards to our faith. So, I just want to encourage anybody that's out there that's listening right now, um, make that a part of your daily prayer. You know, God, continue to change me to the person you want me to be. And and it, it's so true. And I think it was at that point that. Um, that my understanding of sin finally came into focus mm -hmm. you know, from the squeezing the marshmallow bags to the, you know, dating somebody I wasn't supposed to be dating and all of the lists, the checklists of things we should do or things we shouldn't do or things that are nice or things that are not nice or just like a long list of, you know, you know, what's ethical and what's moral, that list of of what, you know, what we do and how we relate to other people. And what I realized was, yes, those things matter. But the heart of sin is not is is not doing or not doing the right checklist. It's it's wanting God to be God in my life. Mm -hmm. And and if I want God to be any less than God, if I just want God to be the dispenser of blessings, right. you know, um which of course I'm he's happy to bless, you know, but if all I want is is him to be giving to me and I'm and I, and I don't trust him enough to say okay whatever you want right you know not my will but your will I can't say not my will but your will it's because in my eyes he's still not God mm. and that's the biggest and that's the heart of sin and that's you know that's that was what was the problem you know in the garden. Um, people were tempted to think, well, you don't need God to know the difference between right and wrong. You know, what if, you know, what if you could just know that on your own and then, you know, you would be the master of your own fate and, and all of that. Yeah. And and it, because there are people who don't know Jesus who do just as well, you know, or even better at relating to other human beings. But none of us, apart from God's grace, are able to want God to be God, to to embrace the fact that he knows more, that he has more power, that he actually has a right to get in our business. I guess that's pretty much my story. And, and like you said, every day, you know, that prayer changed me, helped me to welcome, you know, and God is really sweet about yeah. pointing out where where we should change when we welcome it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I think that that Praying the prayer, God changed me to the person that you want me to be, shows us that we're aware of our sin, but but also um, 
the fact that you're praying that, um, that, that prayer in and of itself wouldn't come from an unrepentant heart, a person that doesn't have the spirit of God living in him. Um, so that's an, it's, it's another, what you could, what you could say is a fruit that it doesn't necessarily express itself outwardly, but inwardly, we know he's there. We know he's real. And even though if you're watching this, you might not feel you're really that connected to him. There's a really big difference between living in sin and loving it and living for God and struggling with it. There's, there, it's, there's a huge difference. And I think maybe some people, a takeaway could be, hey, I'm struggling with God. Do I actually believe? And the fact that you're struggling with God is a wonderful, struggling with faith in God is a wonderful because there's a great Bible verse, you know, God help me in my unbelief. And I think if we cling to that and we realize that unbelief goes back to the the, the garden um, and it's continued throughout human history. And so I think that the points that you've made were, were priceless. And I thank you for sharing your testimony, Ruth. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. I The more I speak with Jewish people here in Israel and all around the world, I've been hearing why people just don't believe or want to believe in the God of the Bible. Can you tell us what you've learned over the decades that could help people understand why following the God of the Bible is so hard for people? Um, well, I think there's a number of, of, of reasons. Uh, first of all, there's very few things in life that you can say, you know, 110%. Um, you know, there's, there's always an element of faith in what we believe, whether it's the God of the Bible or the God of our own imaginations. We, there's at some point you know, to, to, to say that I'm, I'm absolutely certain with no doubts ever. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are things in the Bible that I still struggle with. Of course. Um, and, um, and I think that, that all of us who believe do, I, I think what it comes down to is you're always going to have to struggle with whatever it is that you believe, because there's always going to be some problem <laughs> with whatever you believe. Yeah. Um, Good point. There's always going to be something that doesn't quite add up or something that's paradoxical or something that you just can't identify with. And I think that um, the difference between believing in the God of the Bible versus how we imagine God to be, mm-hmm. I think is that matter of identity, which is which is actually kind of interesting because um, a lot of people will say, well, I just can't believe in a God who you know, blank and blank, and then they'll quote something from the Bible. Right. And and so so the point then becomes, who am I based on what God I believe in, <laughs> rather than who actually is God and how can I know him? Yeah. And, and, and I do think that a lot of people haven't actually read the Bible, and so therefore a lot of people have kind of cherry-picked portions of it yeah. that they really can't identify with. And I'll be honest, you know, there's a few things in the Bible that I can't identify with either, and, you know, some of them are historical, cultural, or whatever. For some of them, there are explanations. For others, there are not explanations, and we just have to kind of figure that if God is real, he's infinite, and we as finite beings are never going to completely understand everything about him. But he reveals enough that we do understand that we can believe that he's good, mm-hmm. that we can believe that he keeps his promises. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things that he shows us throughout the Bible um, that that make it to be enough if, you know, if you're open to what God is going to reveal about himself and the fact that he's not going to reveal everything to your satisfaction or to my satisfaction, that there's always, 
There's always going to be. So I think a lot of it is a matter of identity. And I think a lot of people um, who say I could never believe in a God who, you know, fill in the blank. Right. It's almost like they feel like believing in God is joining a club. Like then, and they're saying, you know, well, in my club, you know, this is how we operate, you know, and I don't like that club over there because that's how they operate. But, but in reality, God is who he is, whether or not we believe in him Yep. and whether, and whether or not we like it. And, and the Bible says that we automatically don't like it because he's in charge and we're not. Yes. Yeah. I, I talked to a lot of people and honestly, I, I just be honest. I, I loved, um, before coming to faith, I loved being the God of my own world. I loved it until it wrecked me, <laughs> you know, in my twenties, oh, it's great. I'm, I'm single, I'm traveling the world and I can make, I can create my own reality and, and, uh, you know, we're all God and I'm a piece of God and I can just do whatever I want and have spirituality with really no moral consequences. And I loved that until my philosophy and my reality were just a billion miles apart. And I was trying to maintain my own happiness with the weight of this, uh, I would call religious legalism that I created on my shoulders that I couldn't carry any longer. And it, it completely destroyed me. Um, and so I used to live in all those cliches, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want a God that's judgmental. I want to be spiritual and, and with no moral consequences. I, you know, I don't want someone looking at me and, and seeing everything that I do. And so I, I lived like that. And so after, after coming to faith and, and, and God giving me a spirit, which gave me a, a, a sound mind to be able to see the difference, um, those cliches just, just, just dissolved immediately. Um, not saying that I don't ever struggle. Of course I do, but um, I, I lived in cliches like crazy, but never had depth in them. Yeah, and and I think that there are a number of cliches that are at, at work very naturally, you know, in us as as human beings. And 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 I think when somebody says, "Well, I could never believe in a God who," and then they fill in a blank from something that was cherry picked from the Bible, um, I think that it's. There's a sense of self-sufficiency, like I, I, I am enough to decide who I want to be. Right. I, I don't need God to help me be a moral person. I don't need God to help me be a nice person or good to my neighbors. And, and actually, for a lot of people, that's very true. Right. Um, but, but, but there's still the reality that if, if God is real, um, he has a say in our lives so that everything can be good and fine on a horizontal, but there's still the vertical that that's right that that we need to worry about. And so you know people will say, well, I don't need God in order to blank and blank or it used to be really common for people to say and I've had many people tell me, you know, well, believing in God is for weak people, it's a crutch mm -hmm. and and the assumption is that you can have some kind of a spiritual life that doesn't require, you know, that doesn't have specific requirements for health in a way that you would never expect that for your physical body. You know, you you don't consider food a crutch. You don't consider water a crutch. You don't consider shelter a crutch, but you're not going to survive without them. You don't consider love even a crutch. Well, I mean, I guess some people do, but they're the most unhappy people in the world. <laughs> you know, we we need love, but then that starts to get into the spiritual. We have just like we have physical needs, we have spiritual needs, and it is not a crutch um, to to look to have those spiritual needs met. And and when we 
think that we know how to nourish ourselves spiritually. It's kind of like, you know, being a little kid who's like, you know, well, of course, you know, chocolate for dinner is a good idea. <laughs> I, I, asked my, I asked my my middle son the other day, I said, if I let you eat anything that you, you would, would you do that? He said, oh, yeah, I totally would. And, you know, he'd choose junk, you know, candy and cake. He, he would just go for it. I don't know how long he'd last doing that. But, you know, I asked him straight up and he said, yep, I do it. And then, and then when you're full of that stuff, you don't have an appetite for the stuff that really nourishes you. And it's yeah. the same, like, you know, we fill ourselves up, you know, on spiritual, you know, fluff. Right. When we don't have that appetite for something more nourishing. Mm, good point. I mean, I, I think I would, I would be willing to say that my faith in God is a crutch in a way, but it's a crutch that I can't hold myself up without him. I, I need him. You know, people say, "Oh, you're you're a good person," and you. And I'm like, I'm really honestly, maybe in maybe in uh, in in society's terms, maybe I'm a good person. But you know, in, in spiritual terms, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a horrible person, honestly. And um, I, I don't say that, you know, in in terms of like self hate. I'm not like hating myself. Um, what I'm doing is realizing my need for a, a holy God to make me into something that I'm not and that I can't do on my own. Yeah. And, and that's very countercultural, right. you know, right. because we, you know, because we're encouraged to have these delusions of autonomy. Um, why? Well, because if we decide, you know, what's going to make us happy and fulfilled, then we'll be attracted to buy whatever people want to sell us and spend our money. And, you know, if it's all, if it's all up to me, then, you know, let's go shopping, you know, <laughs> And yeah. and I in shopping metaphorically, but you know, but we're but we're kind of conditioned, especially I think in the West, um, you know, to feel like any anything less than autonomy somehow robs us of dignity. But if we're created in God's image, as I believe that we are, um, you know, God is God is other oriented, mm. and he's he's also sovereign. So if we're made in his image, we're like him, but we are not him. So we also are other oriented, but we're not sovereign. And so wanting to be autonomous is, well, again, it's the same mistake that we've made. I'm going to, I'm going to, to your point, um, I was 24 when I sold all my possessions, broke up with my girlfriend, bought a one-way ticket to Israel. I'd never been out of the United States to that point, but I knew I needed to change my life. Um, and so I, you know, th me coming to faith would be a little bit over 20 years later. But um, when I flew to Israel, I, I, was, I was in this really odd spiritual occult mindset. And I landed in Israel, went down to a kibbutz in the Southern Negev, the Southern uh, um, desert. And I was in a community of about 800 people, seven or 800 people, and I would take walks around at night, look up at the stars, and I would say to myself, nobody that I know knows where I am right now. Wow, what an amazing feeling. I wanted that autonomy so bad because I, I wanted to break free from authority, uh, break free from the control of society, control of not knowing that I was actually in another society, um, but um, and, and just decide for myself, where I was going to be and what I was going to do. And I loved that feeling until 
this is kind of like a little warning, <laughs> until um, I realized that I could no longer relate to people. I had a very difficult time in relationships, very difficult time communicating because I was always trying to be autonomous and, 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 and other than, you know, instead of needing others. I don't need anyone. Uh, I, I'm just fine by myself. And like I said before, it was great in my 20s, but when I got to be 40 with a wife and kids and a business and everything, it, I was ruined because <laughs> I'm in complex relationships and not knowing how to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. Being self-contained, it's, we weren't designed for that. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And when I first learned that, you know, God had been in relationship since, you know, for, for eternity, um, that made so much sense uh, as to why we need so much to be in relationship. So, you know, thank you so much for, for sharing that. When we were speaking in preparation for this video, Ruth, this, the conversation, um, for this conversation, you were telling me how much you love talking about the book Ecclesiastes. So why, tell us, why do you love this book so much and what is it you'd like to share about it? Um, I got to go back to my Bible school days. Um, it's really funny because the, the first I really noticed uh, Ecclesiastes um, was um, at a, uh, a secular college and we studied it in wisdom literature and I loved it then. And then I went to uh, Biola, which... Don't get me wrong, Biola now Biola University is a great it's a great school, and I I don't want to pick at it, but um, the professor who taught this said, I don't really know why this is in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so so really? I I I think that that Bi Bible believers don't always appreciate the Book of Ecclesiastes so much, and um, it's just has always meant a lot to me number one um whether you believe that king solomon wrote it as i do or just some very wise person mm -hmm. it's so comforting to me to know that somebody who was much smarter than i am um had a lot of the same struggles that i do and a lot of uh questions that i have and and um and i i think that you know, whether you're a believer or or a seeker, it's good to keep asking questions. You know, God's not, you know, there's certain things that God wants us to know 100% and he makes those things very clear. But there's other things that it's it's good and right and fine to to question and to struggle with. In fact, it can bring us closer to him. And and so the the book of Ecclesiastes does that. It 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 makes it okay to express frustration at the way that things are in the mm -hmm. world. Right. It kind of it it kind of in a much more poetic way than I'm capable of, um, sort of vents some of the frustrations of life with the you know, there's there's patterns that are pleasurable and there's patterns that are painful and 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 the book of Ecclesiastes you know talks about both of those patterns but more than anything it talks about where is the meaning in life, and um, and I think a lot of people, you know, have have that struggle for meaning, particularly in, in light of the fact that, you know, all of us, you know, have an expiration date, you know, mm. none of us are going to be walking around on this earth forever. And so I think for a lot of people, the thought of death just seems to suck all the meaning out of life. Mm. And here's a book that, that deals with that in a very raw way that is relevant for any generation. I don't care how older young you are or you know it's just it's just so so relevant 
Yeah. Um, but then my favorite um, verse in the whole, which I actually a couple of years ago I got my first tattoo and <laughs> the only tattoo because I don't know I can afford the other ones that I want. But um, so so the tattoo is um, it's basically the theme is uh, Ecclesiastes three eleven, which is he has made everything beautiful in its own time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can know what God is doing from beginning to end. Well, that's a translation anyway. Mm-hmm. And and so when life is frustrating, when um when the fear of death looms, mm-hmm. um Ecclesiastes says, Good, good. It's good that you feel frustrated. It's it's good that that you don't embrace the idea um, that we should all die, and so and so the frustration and the fear can actually serve a purpose, um, which is to know that this isn't really how it's supposed to be, and what's more, there is something better, there is something more. And while I wouldn't say that Ecclesiastes, you know, wraps up everything and puts a bright shiny bow on it, you you right. know we do. We do have the the contrast of life under the sun, and then those verses that talk about God, mm-hmm. and and then you know especially to me the heart of the whole book is that He has put eternity in our hearts, and so and so when we're not satisfied, it's because God has designed us for a longing um, that only He can satisfy, and that everything under the sun, as it were, you know mm-hmm. every everything. Um, you know, that we might see as, as, you know, being in our jurisdiction, um, has an end and that no matter how wealthy you are, no matter, no matter how many pleasures you're able to amass, there's still going to be this frustration, but frustration and fear are what guide us to something better. Yeah, I agree. Um, a lot of people say, you know, why, why do so many people when they reach the depths of hell, when they're depressed and anxious, why? Why only then do they find Jesus? And you know, I think this the, the book of Ecclesiastes is a great um, indication that it, it it's not always like that. Um, there are many people that have everything that they, they've ever wanted, and they come to a place where they say, "Is this all there is? Uh, um, I, I I thought I was going to be satisfied, but I'm not." You know, it, it it's like chasing after the wind, um, and I you know that the the Hebrew word for um, for what what they say is vanity, they use is is, is hevel, which actually translates into uh, steam or vapor. You know, you you can try to grab it, but as soon as you do, it slips through your hands. And, and I think the 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 life that people lead is they're continuously trying to grab and hold on to things, and they may seem like they're holding on to it for a while, but eventually it will slip from between their fingers and 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 vanish. Um, you know, I think it says or something along the lines, you know, the mountains and 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 the the the, the oceans and everything. These were all here well before we were and they're going to be here well after we are um we're just here for a, a very small period of time and you know the book of ecclesiastes uh, to your point talks about what we can really hold on to um and like you said also that um you know I, god you i think this was in your testimony if i'm not mistaken um you're the only one that loves me that will never die wow that was a huge huge statement and uh that hit my heart and it's true um, everything that we have is going to pass. And so what can we really put our faith and our hope in but God himself? Yeah. 
And it's a, when I say that it's irrelevant, it's a relevant, not irrelevant. It's a relevant book, you know, for, mm-hmm. for all ages. I think that in a sense, it's built into us. It's why, it's why dystopian stories, you know, seem to be more popular than utopian stories. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm a Star Trek nerd. And I, I mean, if you look at, at, at the earliest, you know, Jim Kirk, William Shatner, Leonard mm-hmm. Nimoy, Spock, and that. And then you look at um, the most recent <clears throat> with Picard, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the early Star Trek was they're going to other, you know, planets and they're bringing with them the the philosophy that we've gotten past all bigotry and hatred and we've and medical science, you know, has wiped out hunger, sickness, and all of these things. And now we've got nothing better to do than go explore people and let them find their own way to this ultimate happiness, you know, that we're experiencing. And I mean, I suppose part of it might be that, you know, every good story needs conflict, but, you know, their conflict was always, you know, with the other planets, you know, where things, you know, where they hadn't gotten so evolved. Mm-hmm. But, but what's interesting in the Picard series is that it's still this, you know, very futuristic thing. And there's, you know, medical science is so great and there's this and there's that and there's not, you know, all of these wars anymore. But there's all of this inner intrigue in high, you know, places and people are still, you know, subject to, you know, bigotry and 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 all of these things that are, you know, really in the human heart. Right. So, okay. Yeah. No. Sorry about that. <laughs> No, 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 no. It's good. No, one of my one of my best friends. He's a he loves the Star Wars. So, um, you know, we all love. That's you know, totally so, different than Star Trek. No, of course, of course, it is right. Um, <laughs> said by a by a, a Trekkie, uh, the true and true. Um, Ruth, thank you. And I, you know, let's encourage everyone to read the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you feel that life is uh, meaningless, if you have uh, are struggling with uh, loss, um, unfortunately, it is a part of our life, but we can continuously, like you said before, grab onto the one that never dies and the one that will always love us. So thank you, Ruth, for sharing that. Ruth, you've been around Jewish believers in Jesus for your entire life. And you've also witnessed a lot of hostility towards Jesus by our Jewish people. So coming from your background and experience, what is it about Jesus that causes so much tension between the Jewish people that do believe in Jesus and those that don't? And before you get into this topic, if you haven't seen Ruth's testimony, go check it out. It's here on the channel. So Ruth, what have you witnessed and how um, how have you seen things change over time in uh, today's modern world? Um, that's an interesting question. And um, the editor in me wants to say, I probably w- might have to tweak that question a little bit to give a, a meaningful answer because- Go for it. I, I, I can't say that I've seen a lot of change in how our people- see or react to Jesus himself. I think the reactions that I have seen are reactions to being Jewish and believing in him. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and also a little bit of a disclaimer is that, you know, the my changes and, you know, what I've done with Jews for Jesus over the years and also the fact that, you know, my I'm working part-time now. Um, I have my early years in Jews for Jesus were were out on the streets and, you know, meeting people who didn't know me, who I didn't know, and what their reactions were. And then um, as I began to come into a 
um, uh, the writing and the editing, I saw a lot of articles that were written um, about Jews for Jesus. And so mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that many people at all had hostility toward Jesus himself. I think it would be a very small minority of um, maybe some Haredim, maybe some ultra-Orthodox who actually heard stories that are kind of extra-biblical accounts of Jesus and, you know, very kind of mythological stuff, almost like fairy tales, like that while Jesus was able to do miracles because he stole the holy name of God and Mm. he did this and he did that and he did the other thing. But most Jewish people never heard, much less believed that. So, so it hasn't really, in my experience, been hostility to Jesus himself. Rather but faith in Jesus. Rather faith in him. Um, that's in two camps, you know, those, you know, those who believe in him and have done terrible things to our people, and then those Jewish people who have kind of joined that camp and are now self-hating or whatever. Mm. That was, you know, that was my my early experience and and i think that a lot of jewish people probably still feel that way today but not but not as many and i think that mixed in with that is the survival instinct that god has planted in our people is you know is like epic Mm. you know god promised that the jewish people would not die out you know as a people and and even Jewish agnostics or, or, or atheists still have this, you know, this very strong identity, which I believe is right. God. So, so anything that would threaten that identity, then, you know, when people are angry, it's because they're wanting to protect something. So if people are angry about faith in Jesus, it's usually because they want to protect their, their Jewishness or their Jewish identity that they feel is threatened by. Yeah. And the reason why people feel threatened is in part because of things that were done in his name, but also in part because who's to say what it means to be Jewish? Um, and the more latitude and the more leniency there is in what you don't have to believe or what you don't have to do to be Jewish, there needs to be a line of demarcation. And I think that for decades, wow. believing in Jesus was that line of demarcation. And I think that I think that younger generations are questioning that line of demarcation just as every other line of demarcation is being questioned. Mm-hmm. And particularly as as people are getting to know, I mean, Jews for Jesus, you know, we still have people that go out in public um, because we don't want the only people that hear about Jesus to be the ones that we get to know personally. That would be unfair. Um, but I think that, that, that a lot more of what we do is in community with people who know us and are not able to so easily believe, you know, prejudge things about what it means to be Jewish and believe in Jesus when you've got a relationship with a person who clearly doesn't fit the stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you said about that line of demarcation. I do a lot of street. Um, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't want to call it um, ministry. But I mean, I, I, I love talking to people like you. I love engaging in conversation and making relationships. And so I go out on the streets, uh, we, you know, we have this um, other channel called So Be It, and uh, we go on the streets and we interview people and talk to them about the questions that are on their hearts. And um, I found that when we talk to a lot of people about Jesus um, in today's society, they're, they're not so hostile towards the, the idea 
because in in a postmodern mindset, well, everybody can believe in whatever they want as long as you're not hurting anyone else. And everybody is right in their own way and everybody has their own truth. So if that's what makes you happy, you know, go for it and do it. And then I, I got one comment by someone that was really, um, really interesting. It was fascinating. And to your point, he said, um, don't you know that believe that being Jewish means not believing in Jesus? And I knew that that was in, in, in the minds of people, but I'd never heard somebody actually say it to me before that, a Jew is a Jew because he doesn't believe in Jesus. And I thought, wow, you know, let's open up our Hebrew scriptures and see what being a, a, a Jew means. And, and, you know, it's it's interesting what some people hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's always, you know, e- even, when, even when we do still encounter hostility, I think it's helpful to remember that hostility and anger is for the purpose of protecting something. Mm-hmm. And um and and protecting one's Jewishness and one's Jewish identity is valid, important, and I believe from God. It's just that without God and without the scriptures, people can't be expected to protect it in in, in a way that is aligned with reality. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, um, thank you for sharing that, Ruth. Um, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate all of your your wisdom. And um, I, is it okay if I show your book? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, I, Ruth is an amazing writer, um, very captivating. And uh, she wrote a book called Contra- uh, called The Controversy, The Unlikely Story of Moshe Rosen and, and the Founding uh, of Jews for Jesus. Um, I started reading this book and I immediately was, was taken in by it. So um, check it out, uh, called To Controversy by Ruth Rosen. Ruth, thank you for being here. Um, thank you for gracing us with your presence. And uh, yeah, yeah. And if you haven't seen Ruth's videos, go check them out here on the channel. So I hope you've enjoyed our series with Ruth Rosen. To find out more about Ruth and her work, click on the link below in the description and stay tuned for more conversations with Jewish believers in Jesus. To find out more about Jews for Jesus, you can visit us and even chat with us anonymously at our website at jewsforjesus.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And may you all find hope, peace, and love in our Messiah, Yeshua.